I am so sorry. I hear I invite you to my podcast, and then I'm late in my very own building. So sorry about that. There you go. 25 push-ups if it was anybody else, Brian. 25? All right. That's easy. That's it. Done. (laughs) He's on it. You're my kind of pastor. Way to go. <laughs> oh, man. 25, baby. Well, I'll tell you part of why I just decided to do that. Not, it wasn't just doing penance, but I've been on this new uh, push-up craze the last couple of weeks. So it gave me, a, gave me a reason to do it. There you go. Same here. That's funny. I, I decided I'm uh, going to fight a little more aggressively becoming into the 50s. I... I can't just stand by. If you don't take it, ah, you will lose it. Right. Exactly. No, actually, I, I read a, uh, I listened to a, another podcast where a guy talked about these things called micro habits. His his thing was, we don't we don't get a habit by by doing it twenty one days in a row or doing it sixty days in a row. We do. We get a habit because we pin it to something that automatically happens anyway. You know, you you have a habit of celebrating birthdays because it's pinned to this cultural thing that happens around your birthday. So you have a habit of you know birthday cakes and stuff like that. And so he's talking about talking about all the habits that he has done, and he pins them to something else he naturally already does. And uh, and he mentioned that every time he does takes a takes a, takes a whiz. He does two push-ups, and then his whole his whole thing is, of course, once I make the effort to get down there to do two, it's two is easier to psych myself up for. Ah, it's just two, but in reality, once you get down on the ground, you're going to do more than two. And so I've been doing that since uh, I don't know since I heard the podcast. I think that's a good idea because I've been frustrated with my with my push-up count. So I said, well, I'll do I'll do ten ten push-ups every time I every time I got a whiz, and. I'm probably when I, once I get it, I'm the ten. Ah, whatever. I may as well go go to twenty. So anyway, you you, you gave you, me, you 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 gave me two peas worth there. So thank you very much. Nice, I love and it. And we're breaking all kind of rules on the aggressive life because I'm supposed to have some nice little intro that I give, and I always tell the guest, "Hey, let's not talk at all right now because we're probably going to get into some good stuff, and I won't have to repeat it." And now, what do you know? We're aggressively going off script. For those of you listening, to aggressive life. I assume the dirt has been recording this whole time. Dirt, dirt's been recording the whole time. So this is the first time you haven't gotten some nice little pithy intro. It's kind of like, kind of like Joe Rogan over here. You're here, Joe Rogan's podcast, Will. Yes. Yeah, except I'm not going to get high with you or you know slam beers or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> The guy's like, he's so unusual. Like, cause you turn to sometimes you go, that is a very well thought out guy. What a, what a, he's very, oh, that's smart. And then, and then he gets into like psychedelics and all, I'm going, oh my gosh, dude, you're off the deep end. Where are we going with this, Joe? Exactly. Are you wondering about the same thing for me right now? Are you wondering where we're going with this right now? No, not at all. This is fun. Good. Glad to hear it. Hey, let's fill it on everybody else. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. That's a long, rambling intro for you. Actually, Dirt does such a good job making these nice little intros for me. I'm going to have to read it anyway. You okay? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. 
Where were you on September 11, 2001? I know I don't have to ask you if you remember where you were, because if you're old enough, everyone remembers. We were glued to our TV sets in horror watching the unthinkable unfold before our very eyes. What you likely don't remember is where you were a month later. One of 12 Green Beret soldiers on October 19th, 2001, Will Summers was crossing the border into Afghanistan. His mission begin the liberation of the country from the rule of the Taliban, which had made it a safe hideout for extremism. The inhospitable and mountainous terrain meant Summers didn't have tanks or trucks with him. What did he have? Horses. Eleven fellow soldiers and a small band of allies. That's right. That's right, boys and girls. You're going to get the story behind the story of the movie you might have liked with Thor that was in it called 12 Strong. These horse soldiers, as they've come to be known, had an amazing impact, and we're going to dig into that and a bunch of other things. After 25 years of service, Will retired from the military in 2013, but when aggressive living is baked into your blood, you don't just go sit in the beach for the rest of your life. Instead, Will joined many of his fellow horse soldiers in a new adventure, launching horse soldier bourbon with distilleries in Ohio, Kentucky, and Florida. I can't believe, oh my gosh, dirt is just, we're just talking about Joe Rogan and getting high, just talking about all that stuff. And here, here, dirt just brings me this bourbon that is actually our man, our guest today, Will Summers, real live American hero. Welcome, Will Summers, the aggressive life. I am aggressively happy to be here. <laughs> I did. It didn't connect. What an intro. I know <laughs> it's a good and, and dirt just hold out in this this whole deal. I think that's really crazy. I'm holding up to my camera here, horse soldier. This is uh this is Will's brand. We're going to talk about this, but I just find that fascinating. Like the very first time. I went off script at the beginning and just kind of talked with the guests because Derek will tell you every single time, I don't want to have any small talk with the person at all. I want to just wait because I always tell tell somebody, hey, don't say that now because we'll have you say that again later. But because I was late and you pushed me into push-ups, it got us into a Joe Rogan moment. And I just talked about Joe Rogan and everybody imbibing. And here, I'm going to have to imbibe with you, Will. I'm I'm going to have to do. So before we do this, just Tell, give the story in your own mind or and your own truth. Twelve Soldiers, that movie, real, not real. How much of it was made up? What was it like watching that movie for you? Just uh, wax eloquent for us. Okay, um, the movie had a realistic timeline portrayal, somewhat of some of the characters. Uh, there was no engagement uh, with our team. So they bought the rights to the book Horse Soldier and produced the book. And that kind of generated, created a fuse of um, not having to pass any finances our way. But they were, hmm. we, we, we approached them and said, hey, uh, you made this movie. No one's spoken to us. And they said, that's right. We don't know you anything. But they did invite us to. Uh, the premiere in New York with all of our children. That was nice. The movie itself, um, unfortunately, they gave us the credit for a lot of the charging into battle on horseback 
that the Northern Alliance actually did. Um, you know, special forces are, we're force multipliers. We take what you have and make it, um, make it better, make it more effective. So we weren't leading cavalry charges as the movie had portrayed us alone leading these cavalry charges when in fact it was a coordinated effort with the Northern Alliance. These were the guys who really were in the fray on horseback. And the Northern Alliance were Afghanis that were doing, doing their business. Right. Primarily with us ethnic Uzbeks as they were attached to uh, General Dostum, but we had Pashtuns and uh, Tajiks. They were all over the place. Boy, what a bummer, man, that the guy who was actually there wasn't consulted because they were afraid to throw you some shekels. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning, 9-11. We had the 9-11 anniversary not too long ago here in America. Personally, I was a little bit a little bit bummed that I thought that it got a little less play than it should have. I don't know. I was just kind of kind of stunned by that. It was it was our generation's moment of where were you when RFK died? Where were you, Will, when you found out those to- those towers were down? Where were you? Um, originally, sitting in uh, the dining facility at, at Fort Campbell, the Fifth Group, we were all talking about you know how in the world could something as sophisticated as an airliner crash into a building you know just that statement alone is just so hard to fathom and you know all these ideas of what could have possibly happened heart attacks and you know whatever something this and that uh and then a lot of the old guys that were saying Mm-mm, boys this this is this is an attack this is evil this is something bad and we were just thinking you know these guys and then crash, here comes the second airplane. And I just remember across the hall, the forks and knives went down and there was just silence. And uh, guys just started getting up and walking away. At that point, there was no question uh, we were going to war. What's so still mind-blowing and stunning to me looking back on that whole thing is how how creative that attack was. I mean, when you think about it, you know, symbolically going after our financial industry, that's the Twin Towers, symbolically going after our military, that's the Pentagon, and then symbolically going after our our entire governing structure, which was the Capitol building that fortunately didn't get hit because driven into a ground in the field in, in Pennsylvania. I mean, you think about that creativity with just box cutters. Like, okay, guys, we're going to get some people who know how to fly planes and we're going to get some box cutters because agents don't care about box cutters and we're going to do this. And that is, that is just, it just, it's just mind-blowing to me. And, of course, looking back on it, it's so obvious now. Oh, of course that could happen. No, it wasn't obvious. That's why we had not have a defense for it. It makes you freaked out about what kind of obvious, sinister things are there that could be happening any day that some creative person is thinking about. Do you think that much about that, Will? I, I do. I, I, I see the whole attack as a big failure, my point of view, 
that, you know, they keep thinking that we are um, invested and unified like they are in their own nations. You know, but America is very uniquely different in the entire planet. So, yeah, come on in. They attacked icons and really they were their icons. I mean, they're ours as well, but they're just icons. Mm. These things can come and go and be rebuilt. But what they failed to see is, is they failed to attack the nation. You know, they thought that, that these icons were going to just uh, unravel us, but they unified us. They thought that they were going to strike fear into our hearts, but there was rage and a desire for justice. Everything that they hoped to accomplish failed, I think. So when you went and you became a quote unquote horse soldier, which I know is not an offensive term to you because I have your bourbon here. We're going to get into your <laughs> bourbon in just a moment, which it's really hard for me to talk about anything other than having the first podcast where I drank bourbon on it with somebody who created it. So just so you know, I'm, yeah. I'm showing amazing restraint here. Amazing restraint. Restraint Joe Rogan wouldn't show. Joe Rogan oh, would be no. blitzed right now. But no, no, I'm very restrained. But I wish I had known I would have had a bottle and, and toasted with you. Wait, it's your own bourbon. You don't have a bottle. Not at my desk. I don't. I have an empty bottle. <laughs> All right. I already did my toast. There we have. There you go. So, well, okay. I'm just going to crack it right away. We're going to get in your bourbon a little bit, but I may as well sip Let's along while you. So. And you've got what? The straight? I have the uh, horse soldier straight bourbon whiskey, but the, the copper label says premium. Yep. That's right. Oh. I like it. I like it a lot. So a high rye. Yeah, that's it. Does remind me a little bit of a uh, uh, bullet rye. Okay, it's got some rye in it. It's still it's still a bourbon, but we put rye in it. We made it initially to be a mixer, so real sweet up front, and then that kind of a spicy black pepper finish. That's the rye. Ah. All right, we'll get into this in a moment. Let's, let's stay on 9-11, yeah. Will. So mm. as you are doing that mission, you're on that horse. Uh, at that point, are you thinking back to the events of 9-11 regularly as a source of motivation? Or is it like, no, this is just what I've signed up. That's that's not going through my mind at all. It's just about the mission. That was not going through my mind at all. We had enough to occupy our mind where we weren't trying to daydream up some rage motivation it was all there we had our hands full while we were there from hundreds to thousands of northern alliance soldiers as we built an army plenty of enemy when we first got in there they were everywhere so you know we were up against 40 60 80 man elements and uh so that's a good fight you know a lot of folks who serve our country in the military with amazing diligence have jobs that don't put them on the front lines in harm's way. This job you had, that was, uh, you're, you're, I mean, you, you're on the front line. You're, uh, something could happen at any moment and right. make your life end or make your life very uncomfortable for the rest of your life. 
Do you think about that much when you're in that situation or is it just head down, um, just doing a mission? I don't think about those things. Yeah, you're always thinking about it because you, I mean, you've been training. You know the effects of these weapon systems and what they do. Uh, Certainly don't dwell on it. You're being shot at all the time out there. These guys aren't terribly accurate. You know, if you get if you get hit by uh, Taliban, at least early out, it was a it was a ricochet or a lucky shot because they probably had their eyes closed when they were pulling the trigger. Certainly don't dwell on it. You know, people who do, I feel like, are just um, they're they're paralyzed to some degree. And, um, if you're, if you're just focused on the task at hand, doing your job, keeping your eye out on your buddies, that's the biggest thing, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for, for your service and doing what you've, what you've done, what, what little we know from whatever the movie portrayed inaccurately. It was still amazing and thankful for you hugely. Sure. So you go and do that tour and... When, when your tour is up as a quote-unquote horse soldier, then what? Uh, we were chomping at the bit, not to make a pun there, but um, <laughs> we wanted to get back in. Osama bin Laden, the real target at that point, was still at large. We wanted to get into the cave missions. We wanted to get, we wanted to get back in the country. You know, there was a line of teams waiting to do the very same. And since we had been the first team in, that meant we pretty much went to the end of the line. And so we, we had came out, we had hung around Carsey Conabad, which was uh, a ghost town. When we deployed, there were a handful of little tents out there, literally. When we came back, it was like a city, you know? And we were all terribly skinny. We had lost a ton of weight in Afghanistan. So I was about, I went in about 185, 190 and came out about 143. Wow. And so I know, how's that for some keto action? Wow. How does that work? Does the military doesn't feed you or what? You know, what you think of when you think of the military is you're like, what? What fob were you at? What base did you go to? What, you know, what, what military base had we built there? But when we got there, we joined guerrilla fighters. We joined the resistance. That's what uh, unconventional warfare is all about. And so these guys didn't have log chains. They didn't have um, MREs. There was no, you know, what they had had to be either killed fresh and eaten or made fresh. There's no, no preservatives, nothing. And they were starving. They ate grass. We did not eat grass. Um, we did not eat horse feed. But we also, we just didn't have food, you know. So we went long periods of time with very little to no food. <laughs> we did have tons of Nescafe coffee, which will take you a pretty long way uh, if you don't have anything else. So, Good old six scoops of Nescafe will get you through the day. Jeez. So that was it. We just lost a ton of weight, and we were ready to come home when they pulled us out. And they said, no, boys, you're going to eat. You're going to gain some weight before we send you anywhere because you just look like crap. So you're procuring your own food. I hadn't I hadn't even considered that. It's the only way that Hollywood doesn't help us out. They don't give you the real story. So I hadn't even considered that. So how much— how much time every day are you spending trying to find a goat to kill or a 
or whatever it is. I mean, I, so you're, you're having to find your own food. What's that look like? If you're in somebody else's city, you let them run to Walmart. You don't try to do it yourself. So we put it on them. It's just, uh, you know, it's the middle of winter. So there's not a lot of fresh produce anywhere. And we're not in the city. We're in, we're in mountains. And I mean, giant mountains where there's not a lot of food for people or uh, fodder for animals. And so it was rough. You know, sometimes you would get an onion and you're like, hey, delicious. I've got an onion. They had these carrots there that were like 18 inches long. And probably if you cut it in half, you know, six or eight inches in diameter, they looked like little trees. Wow. Real woody but they would just grow them and regrow them annually, annually, like a perennial. But so you had, you had food when you could get it. Normally we would get a little bit of uh, hot, fresh made barley bread, which was pretty decent. Our, our mainstay was, uh, Oh, I can't think of the name of what it was called, but they would boil up some goat bones and fat and mix in some rice and raisins and corn. And, uh, and we ate that a lot. So you could get a healthy portion, but then there's just no nutrition in it. You know, it was rice cooked in beef broth with a handful of raisins filling, but then you're hungry again, 30 minutes later. So we just lost a ton of weight, no protein. It's got to affect your mind, right? Are are you, is your mind wandering? Do you feel not as mentally alert and sharp or what's that like? No, I, I mean, I've always found that hunger sharpens everything. I don't know if you've ever fasted before, an intentional fast. Yes. But um, eyesight, hearing, smell, everything's really sharp. And you get, you kind of turn into that predator mode. You know, I, I would have much preferred to have more food. But uh, no, I felt like it sharpened us. You go through that period. You know, there's a period where um, you're just, oh, but I think it's all mental. You know, there may be some physiological where you're breaking free of all those processed calories and everything. But then once you get on just clean burning fuel and very small amounts of it, you, you definitely go into that predator mode. I've, I've gone on multi-day fast, but I've never done one to the tune of losing 40 pounds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, that's gotta be different territory. <laughs> so you get done with this mission and you, and, and you get back to the military and they say, Hey, we're just going to park you and have you fatten up for a while. How long did that take? Uh, we were home for a year before the team went to Iraq and, uh, a few of us got pulled. I, and what, so they, if you do a high profile mission like that, you've learned something. And so they share part of your team with the training force. I went to training force, which is called SWIC. It's kind of the graveyard for team guys. But if you make the best of it, you know, you are getting cutting edge battlefield knowledge right to the brand new guys coming out. So I made the best of it. And then like I said, a year later, um, our guys, my team deployed into Iraq. And when you, when you were, in Afghanistan initially, how many years had you been in the service? I'm just trying to do the math because you're 25 years, 12, 12, 13 years. You're a 25 year long vet. That is, that is 
um, that is crazy. That's amazing. There's not that many 25s. I remember when I was thinking about enlisting into the uh, Marine Corps when I was in high school, the gold standard was always lifted up as 20 years, 20 years, 20 years. Right. So that's where people wanted to get to. So you're 25. Brother, well done. That's fantastic. Thanks. Thanks a lot. What was the, every time that they would give you the op- opportunity to re-up, was there any common driver that caused you to keep signing on the dotted line? The the mission, the purpose, the men I worked with, I I don't think I could have gone anywhere else. I, I really, I really loved it. And then after about 10 years, you know, you're just different. Tell me more about that. Well, we have a, a very unique set of experiences in life for the majority of our life, really our adult life anyway. And so, you know, it's, it's a different language. It's a different thought process. Um, it's a little more harsh, honest, and upfront, uh, which I noticed when I got out that those are all things you're not allowed to be as a civilian for the most part, if you mm-hmm. want to keep a job. The only time I I really feel super at home and comfortable is around other SF guys because we all have the same inputs for so long. We just, we speak the same language and it's like being from the same country. So, so did that make being out of the military difficult? Was there a, a grieving process you had to go through? Was there a, a I almost say detox, detox is the right thing. It makes it sound like what you, had, <laughs> what you were in before was unhealthy, but you know what I mean? What, what was the, what was the shock to the system like? It was, it was, Kind of what I said before, you know, I, I came out of the military into a leadership position corporately where, I, you know, I published an agenda. I published standards. I published tasks that I expected to be completed. And if they weren't, you know, in the military, it's, you know, uh, hey, Brian, I told you to get A, B and C done last week. Looks like you only got C done. What happened to A and B? Where were you? You know, did you get paid every day last week? I expect you to get everything done every week. What's what's the reasoning? And that would be a, a regular meeting in the military. And then you'd be held accountable for what you did or didn't do. You know, it was just so rough and gruff. And I mean, I wasn't angry or yelling or me. I'm a usually a very quiet guy. I don't um, I don't I'm not the yeller and screamer. It's not how I get things done. And uh, it just it seemed so harsh to them that I would actually tell them that I had an expectation for them to do their job. I can't sugarcoat it any better. You're not a good employee. We got to do something about this. I'll help you. I'll train you. And I'll give you a short rope to hang yourself on, but you're going to do it if you do, not me. No, our, our current psyche is that we only want affirming information all the time. And anything right. that, anything that doesn't, validate me or make me feel good comes from a place of evil. And that's just not true. No, truth is beautiful. <laughs> and that was part of your, uh, your re-entry burn was dealing with the disparities between life in the military, the psyche in the military and psyche of the average citizen. Yeah. So it, you know, it, for me, I can't speak for every vet. Um, it left me feeling sort of hopeless and powerless in that, I have a mission and uh, I can't accomplish it because the people around me 
aren't aren't taking the initiative. They're not owning what we're doing, and then even offering help to get them up to speed was suggesting that they weren't good enough. It was just very bizarre for me. It it hurt, you know, to to want to do a job, and then as you see things coming, and and goals not being met. And you're trying to build this team and bring people together and say, I'm going to take you from this project. You help this guy in this project. But they can't work together because they're on different projects. And, you know, it's just, come on. People aren't willing to just devote what they have to getting to accomplishing the mission. And uh, it was just depressing, you know? Yes. So how do you get from that point to starting your own bourbon line? Well, it's a great story. So Scotty Neal, who is our uh, chief operations officer for Horse Soldier Bourbon, um, was good friends with uh, John Coco. They had done a lot of fundraising things. Scott was a special forces guy. He was great with the Special Forces Association, raising funds for them, developing events and growing that organization. So he was always in and out of these different events with John Coco. And they just said, man, we should do something. We should collaborate in some way. And John does everything on max volume. So you don't just sit down and have a conversation about, you know, like, hey, what are some entrepreneurial ventures we might look at? John says, man, we're going to Yellowstone. We're going to backpack and uh, horseback across Yellowstone for 30 days, camping out, spending time, getting to know each other for real. So they did this. They'd come up with a couple of ideas that were really unmentionable at this point in the game. But in coming out, they were sort of dissatisfied. And they had gone into this little mom and pop distillery. And um, they welcomed them in. They said, hey, let's have a drink. They said, do you want to see the distillery? Do you want to see how this works? And they were so passionate about their own little distillery that they said, man, we could do this, you know? And from Yellowstone all the way back to St. Pete, these guys went to just every distillery they could find, gaining knowledge, inspiration, motivation, eventually came up with the idea of making bourbon. Um, Scott was in our battalion at Fifth Group. John was a ranger, an SF guy, and more. Uh, Scott had worked with Mark, our commander, And they said, man, horse soldier would be great if those guys would pair up with us, you know, and this is just in the idea and the conceptual phase of it. And so they contacted uh, Mark and Bob and really all of us at that time, but a lot of us weren't ready to get into it. Um, And so they started the brand, you know, with a real focus on we're not going to kick out some low grade product and push that heartstring veteran, 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 and everybody will buy a bottle, but they'll never buy another bottle. We wanted to showcase um, the highest quality and then also what veterans are capable of. Some of us are able to persevere, um, to endure, to build that character necessary to keep going. You know, we don't just stop and say, man, Life sucks now that we're out of the military. Let's make it better. You know, let's fill a couple of sandbags and improve our position. So that's what we did. Made a world-class bourbon. And um, we were just so proud when we 
when we uh, submitted our first admission to the uh, San Francisco and New York City International Wine and Spirits competitions, you know, we just wanted to get a rating, you know, this is a good solid C plus bourbon, you know, hey, all right, great, we're in there. We're not, you know, we don't have crap. We actually got a grade. And then bang, we took two of the nine double golds given in 2018. So that's huge, that's international. Those are thousands and thousands of brands that were submitted, nine double golds. And that double gold means that every single judge on that panel gave it a gold. And that's the one you're drinking right there. Yeah. It's really good. In fact, I'm going to have to pour some more if I don't, if I don't say so myself. Not, not that I, my go. previous glass was all that huge. I just want a taster of it. I, gotta, I have to keep tasting. It's really, I'm, I'm not a, I drink my share of bourbon, but it's normally cut with Diet Coke. Yeah. So I'm not a huge connoisseur of it all, but I'll tell you this, this stuff, um, it, it tastes like it's already mixed with something that makes it more refreshing than most bourbons oh. are. Refreshing is actually nice. the right word I would say. I wouldn't say that about other bourbons I drink straight. I would say this one actually is. Is that is that weird to there, say? No, no. It, I mean, it's that's what good bourbon tastes like. So these guys who do the Yellowstone camping, they hit every distillery, they start this thing, they now have an actual, they reach out to you, they actually get an actual horse soldier, a number of actual horse soldiers. Your yeah. first read on that, is this a crazy idea? I love this because I've been wanting to get in the bourbon industry for a long time. Where, what's the aggressive move inside of this? For me, I have to say, I'm not really sure it was an aggressive move. Some of the guys jumped right in. Um, I had a, a great career. I was very happy I was spending a lot of time with my family. I have a big family. And so uh, our time and, and my role as a mentor to my children and a husband to my wife is super, super important to me. So uh, I took a little time to warm up to it and began doing some events with them as a consultant. And what I, what I found, what I thought I was going to be into another startup, you know, which I didn't want to do. Uh, but then I found I was among guys like myself. And we spoke the same language. There was an honor. There was a loyalty there that didn't even have to be named because we had all had such a history together. So um, then they got me lock, stock, and barrel. But uh, I wanted to see it pan out a little bit. I had been in a, a previous startup that was ended ugly. So I, I wanted to see these guys take the first few steps. And uh, now here I am. Moved my whole te- my whole family to Texas, and I'm managing the state of Texas for Horse Soldier. What are the if you, so if you look at the the seemingly disparate things that you've done, distillery, startup, military, Horse Soldier, Green Beret. If someone tries to find the through line, well, you know, you said large family. How many? How many kids do you have? Eleven. Eleven kids. Yep. That is awesome. I I can't believe you're not having sex right now. I would assume like you got to be having like sex every minute of every day. Eleven kids. That's fantastic. 
Yeah. Well, you can only see my face, right? <laughs> Uh, that's military humor right there (laughs) all right so uh if you look at all those things will is there a through line that you thought of that that ties all those things together in your life a value a a perspective yeah there's there's two initially pride wanting to be the best And then, um, you know, there was a point in my life in in 1998 where God got a hold of my life and and changed everything about what I did. Because when you're just doing it for yourself, it's easy to be satisfied because you can look around and say, well, I'm better than that guy. I'm stronger than him. I'm faster. I shoot better, blah, blah, blah. And you can constantly justify your position. When God changed my heart and um, said to do everything that I do for his glory and for his honor, that became uh, the ultimate goal, you know, unattainable, really. So I never lost interest. I never, I never could compare myself and say, well, I'm, I'm better than this guy. Nobody's better than Jesus, you know. And so it gave me a new focus of not doing things for myself or for my ego, but doing things, uh, especially in Afghanistan for the glory of God. And that, um, has driven and changed my, and my wife's life from that point forward in our family and our marriage in our work ethic, professionalism. Uh, that's, that's been the bar that was set for me. That has been, if you want to say something aggressive, to pursue. I mean, you have to aggressively pursue that bar if you're going to attain it and you're not. That's what I love about it. It's always the carrot's always in front of my face. And you're dropping bombs on me left and right that I want to dig into now. Like it's hard for me to get past 11 kids. We're going to come back to that one in just a moment. But you, you talked about the glory of God. Contextualize that for us because that's a, that's a really, that's a thing that us preachers would say, but the average person has a hard time understanding how to apply that into their life. So help us. How do you do that? How do you do that? If you're on a, on, on a horse or if you're in a distillery, how are you, how how are you living your life to the glory of God? What's that mean? How's that, how's that play out? It's, uh, it's when you don't want to, and you choose to, and when you choose to, you, you, you look at your work, you look at the work of your hands and you say, is this my best? Because less than my best isn't going to bring God the measure of glory that he deserves and expects of me. And I mean, if I had to define what does it mean to bring glory to God, it would be knowing his will and choosing to do that in everything that you do, being honest, being ethical, being you know, just diligent, hardworking. So you're in something and you're assuming God wants you to be there, unless it's something you've disqualified yourself from for ethical reasons. You're there. You assume, hey, this is something God wants me to do. I'm just going to do it. The New Testament says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Right. And there was a, I mean, there was a huge, there was a, a large obstacle. I was feeling out the distillery, I was filling out the people that I was working with and uh, 
very cautious at first. You know, I, I really sought God until the point where I said, if you are not going to give me a solid release that I can do this for your glory, then I'm laying it down. I'm calling them today. And it wasn't an ultimatum. It was, I was very much submitting to his authority, but I said, if you can't release me on this a hundred percent, then I got to be done with it because I, I can't have this distract me from what you've set before me. And then, you know, how you kind of just wait, like, ah, nothing. And then it was, you know, it wasn't one of those big giant audible, but what about Joseph? What about Pharaoh? And I just went, what? And he said, Joseph didn't work for a Christian organization. He didn't work for uh, a religiously acceptable organization, but he brought me glory in everything he did all the days. And I just felt like, well, that's it. I mean, it wasn't anti-biblical. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a thou shalt not. And so, you know, God just said, look, the world is full of people and some of them you're going to have to work for. So be a light, man. Yeah, I got to think it's pretty hard for you to do anything where being in 75% is an option. You're, you probably have the mentality if I'm in, it has to be all in 100%. Yeah. Like if I'm a dad, I got to be a dad of 11, not a dad of two. Exactly. Yeah. T- take us there. We're, we're, why do you have 11 kids? I, I, I have some guesses as to why. We don't talk to people who have a lot of kids and hear how awesome kids are. You get to be one of those people who yeah. tells us. Well, children are as awesome as you make them. Um, they all have their own personalities, but we lead and train them to surpass us, hopefully. How did we get to the point of having 11 children? We had four you know, we're being heavily pushed to go on birth control or to have, you know, tubes tied or whatever. And we were just doing what the doctor said. So my wife is an absolute research aholic. And she was pulling all these things apart. And we found out things about birth control that we just could not support, um, couldn't be a part of, and decided that, you uh, we loved the children that we had so much that why would we anyway, you know, you always say to yourself, it's not like we're going to end up with 20 of them. And then it really became something that we, we prayed about, we meditated on and, you know, together decided that my wife was willing to, and I'll say more her um, wanted to submit her womb to the Lord's will. And so we, you know, we're just like, man, we're going to enjoy being husband and wife. And if God gives us the blessing of children through that beautiful union, then amen. And if not, and so that was great. And we've enjoyed that ever since then. And we've had 11 children. I have a feeling we're done uh, just in that we're at that stage in life where it, she's just not getting pregnant, you know? Well, that's an aggressive move right there. You're, you're saying... You're saying, well, everyone does this over here. We're not going to do this over here. We're going to choose to do that over there. 
That's cool. That's cool, brother. I, I don't meet many people who regret having yet another kid. I mean, most people I re- meet regret like not having another kid when they get when they get right. older in life. I mean, when you make when you make those decisions when you're 30, you feel like you're overwhelmed. But you know, as time goes on, you eh, I don't know, maybe I should have had another one. I don't think you're going to have any of those regrets at 11. No, no. <laughs> I wish we could have more, but. Well, we are where we are. What's the age and sex breakdown? Uh, six boys, five girls. So my oldest is uh, 21 and our youngest is uh, three. Man, that is that is amazing, man. That's fantastic. Well, are you ready for the lightning round? The lightning round is when I give you a couple. I gave you a topic and you have to answer it real fast, like, like lightning. One or two sentences. But are you ready? Here we go. Right. Favorite bourbon that you don't make? Heaven Hill bottled and bond. As a soldier, the key to pressing through difficulty? Don't look at where you are. Look at where you're going. Thing you're most proud of as a soldier? CIB. Combat Infantryman's Badge. Key as a soldier to working together as a team? Giving 100% of your strength and talents to the task at hand, forgive other people's weaknesses uh, with the same measure of grace that you would like yours to be forgiven. If you can do that, you can do a lot. That's good. Most aggressive mistake you've made in any area of life and what you learned from it? Allowing, giving myself into unforgiveness and <clears throat> and bitterness, and uh, and that almost tore me apart. That is probably the worst thing I have. The worst mistake I made is is not practicing forgiveness early out of the military. That's a good one, Will. You, you mentioned forgiveness earlier, and. When, when you said that, it kind of perked me up like, that's really refreshing because you don't hear many people unprompted speak about forgiveness because we live in a cancel culture. We're not about forgiving anybody. We're about just canceling people. So when you said that, I thought, oh, that was, that was cool and refreshing, but you might have said it because is this something you th- think on regularly about how you wasted years and energy on something that was around bitterness? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was a mistake, I guess in my life, I had never had anything so great, uh, an injustice done to me professionally right outside of the military. And I just, I couldn't get over the principle of the thing, you know, and instead of going, well, that happened, that's something that God's using to develop my character. Um, I didn't, you know, I just, I just dwelt on it, dwelt on it. And eventually it, it consumed me and just was just bitterness, you know, where I was thinking about using my old skilled craft, you know, and, and it took, it took about almost four years for me to, to break free, almost destroyed my marriage, almost destroyed my relationship with my children. And then it just, you know, you kind of hit rock bottom 
And, you know, I'm working, I'm managing a business, I'm doing everything, doing Bible study with my children every morning and every evening, but still there was no doubt in anybody's mind that I was, um, I was a bitter dude and, uh, a good brother, a guy I met in a home Depot parking lot, uh, just set me straight. And I mean, real straight, you know, and, uh, I just went, wow, that's true. And, and just repented of the, the folly of being an unforgiveness. And then I knew when I did, I mean, it was another two and a half years of moving out of that before you start really coming back into the light. So that was my, that was my most aggressive mistake. You, you met an utter stranger in the Home Depot parking lot who set you straight, like read the situation, spoke into you? In that moment? Um, I met him in a Home Depot parking lot, and we hit it off. We're very like-minded guys. So if you have 11 children and you meet a guy that has 12 children in a Home Depot parking lot, you're going to have a little conversation out there. Mm. And I called him, and um, I said, you know, this is weird. I know that we just met, but we were. I saw him pretty often. And I said, uh, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually to the point where I'm considering leaving my wife. He gave me the old slap upside the head with some truth and, um, and said, well, that's the best indication that you need to stop everything you're doing, get rid of every distraction in your life and rebuild your relationship with God, with your wife and with your children. And I said, you're right. And so, I mean, quit my job, did everything started completely over we had a big farm. We sold our farm. We moved into a little neighborhood and um, just got focused on rebuilding my relationship with my wife, with God, my wife and my children. And I knew that I had to because when I called her and said, I'm getting rid of everything, I'm selling the farm. I'm I was working out of town. So I was in an apartment and then home on the weekend, in an apartment, home on the weekend. I said, I'm coming home. And she said, oh, please don't. And I was like, ah, that's it. I'm coming back. There's no stopping me now. That's good stuff, man. That well, that's a that's a massive aggressive move to go undergo a a life rewrite. That that's the kind of stuff this podcast's about. It's not about, hey, let's do the aggressive manly stuff like ride a horse in a battle. It's not about, hey, let's have the most winsome arguments to make somebody else feel like a loser because we've aggressively shot shouted them down. It's about noticing things in your life that need to change. And we tend to not notice those things because those things are always painful. <laughs> you know, the things, that, the things that I want to change in my life, why aren't they happening right now? Because it's easier to live my life the way I want to right now than, yep. than that way. It's the aggressive move to do something that you don't want to do, that you're not sure what's going to look like or feel like. And so thanks for, thanks for making that move and letting us into your journey a little bit, Will. That's fantastic. Yeah, right on. Well, Will, is there anything you want to talk about? that we have not talked about. I would love to share a couple of things about our bourbon that just are amazing. Would love to hear it as I take yet another sip. Okay. So just all award winning, all of our bourbons have, have really won some great awards. And these are, these are something that Johnny Coco calls God winks and, and they have to be shared. They're shared everywhere, but we went, you know, we initially released our bourbon in 2018 
And our, our hope was to sell 250 cases of bourbon that year. And we sold 6,000. We had a lot of the, the big bourbon makers uh, reach out and say, don't get too excited. You're just a flash in the can kind of deal. And then the next year we did 20,000 cases. And we were like, hey, flash bang that sucker. And <laughs> then the third year we started uh, and COVID hit. And we said, uh, we're going to keep doing what's right. We're going to keep doing what works. But if, if the nation is shut down by this stuff, all we can do is our best and, and you know, no harm, no failing if, if things go bad. And we sold 36,000 cases. And then, uh, so this year, December of 2021, we cleared 60,000 cases and we're on target for 100,000 this year. Wow. So I'm very proud of what we're doing. This is 15 guys. You know, we don't have hundreds of employees. So some of the, the other, the cool God winks about our bourbon is when, you know, the, the horse soldier on the front is the America's response monument. And when we went to New York City to dedicate that, that's the only monument at Ground Zero in New York City. When we went to dedicate that, the New York City Port Authority said that there's just such a debt of gratitude towards, you know, what the entire veteran community had done, that they had kept back a portion of the steel I-beams from the Twin Towers for national monuments, and they gave one to us. And so he said, we're going to erect this thing at our headquarters, but we want to take a portion of that steel and reforge it and make the steel bottle molds for horse soldier bourbon out of one of the I-beams from the Twin Towers. So wow. that bottle you have right there uh, and every bottle and every drop of horse soldier bourbon is actually touched by ground zero steel. Wow. It's own little monument. And there's, there's a bunch of stuff about the bottle that's um, really intentional and symbolic. And then this year, uh, well, last year, 2021, October 19th, we broke ground on our own distillery. So we've been leasing these little distilleries. We're breaking ground on our own distillery, which will literally be the best, most amazing distillery on the bourbon trail. It's going to kind of be the Dolly world of the bourbon trail in that it'll have something for everyone in the family, restaurants, hotels, gun ranges, wedding venues, all the horses, all the military horses that are put into retirement will have a home there. It's going to be on 240 acres. And so we'll have all the military steeds there. And then finally, I think another one of those just amazing God winks is our stills are being built, you know, out of copper, and the copper that's going into our still manufacturing is copper from the Statue of Liberty. Wow. There had been some, a service done in 1984, a maintenance was done on the Statue of Liberty and a lot of the copper from the inside of the statue. So no defacing. At first I was appalled, but no defacing. Lady Liberty is as beautiful as she was a hundred years ago, but some of the copper came out and, and no one ever did anything with it. We found it and we're able to buy it and we're making our stills with copper from the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, fantastic. 
Will, if somebody wants to follow up with whatever's happened in your life or follow up with Horse Soldier or get more info, give us your best advertisement. Uh, I guess if you want to keep up with Horse Soldier Bourbon, just go to horsesoldierbourbon.com. We're on all social media venues. Uh, if you want to keep up with me, I've got a Facebook page that, um, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll friend anybody who shows up on there. Will, it's been fantastic getting with you. Thanks for making the time and for giving me a, a little 20 push-up uh, start to our conversation. Something, right I, something I needed. You're a 2P credit. There we go. Hey, thanks, thanks everybody, for joining us today. Uh, that's that's what you got to do, man. Just just learn from Will. Live your life in an unusual way, whether that is taking on difficult assignments in foreign countries, whether that is being pushed to be in an industry that you thought that maybe you'd never be in, i.e. the alcohol industry. Maybe that's because you're going to be doing things with your family, the other thing people think are crazy. Do the aggressive thing. Don't do the passive thing that everybody else is doing take control of your life. Great having you today. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second And leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.